Welcome to the Push Performance Podcast. Welcome, guys. Uh, we're officially starting season two. That's, That's pretty neat. Is this actually episode twenty-one? It's still season one. Yeah, I don't, I don't know how we're even breaking this up, but we'll go anyways, next summer. next summer can be season two. All right. Well, the main the main event of episode one of season two is that we kill off Jordan as a character. I'm I'm down. That's... I want it to at least be like a good fight. <laughs> Not very fair when he's in a different country. It's fine. Liam Neeson does it. I I mean I think we just take wagers on who would win a digital fight. What how did what is a digital DJ know. DJ just just start the podcast man. I don't play video games. Me me and me and Jordan can fight when I get back to the states. We got we got Simon Matthews on the podcast today. Uh, normal group in here. Um, so today we're talk a little bit about more going back to what we talked about with Simon before with some data. We're going go in a different direction with it. Um, talking about data feedback on you know the movement side, the weight room side, the assessment side, throwing side where the game was with data, where it's going with data. Um, you know, Simon, let's start with you, man. Where, when you were playing baseball growing up, what was your main focus on, what was your main thought process growing up? Like, where were you in the youth league, high school league, you know, even in college? What was, like, your kind of approach, you know, going into the baseball development? Yeah, Um how did you look at baseball, you know, baseball development as a lens in a lens through a lens, I guess, is what I'm right. saying. Right. Um I mean, personally coming up, I I was like I was always kind of just like a ball player, right? Like I would play shortstop in little league. I I could never hit, but I tried really hard. Um pitched. Um but I was always a skinny weak kid and so my approach to baseball development honestly was hitting the weight room. And once and and my and my main focus on that was like okay get stronger so that I can throw harder because the rest the rest of what I do works right I'm just a freshman in high school throwing 78 and then a sophomore in high school throwing 81 and you know what I mean and so it was pretty one-dimensional for me it was it was like get strong um stronger I guess everything's relative like I told Welly um but uh, get stronger so I can throw harder. Um, because for me at the time, uh, right. Like, like the rest of my game was, was actually pretty good. Right. Like I, like I threw strikes, I was a sinker baller, which I would never want to be now, but like, it's what my body did. Right. And so, um, the, it was, it was just all about velocity for me, all about velocity. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of like ass backwards of what I did, right. Where, I thought I would just get better by playing more and practicing more, taking more ground balls, hitting as much as I possibly can, you know, going to take ground balls for two or three hours, hitting for two or three hours and not taking my swing to account where I was just snap hooking top spinner balls into the, you know, down the third base line. You know what I mean? Um, so that's, you know, for me, it's like, I never thought about the weight room, Yeah. you know, and that's essentially why I do what I do now. You know, it's just, it did change the way I was able to look at things, but you know, I never thought about the data, you know, I never mm-hmm. thought about looking at my 60 time or, you know, or my exit velocity or anything like that. Like the only thing that people track really was how, how hard could I throw the ball from, from short to first, you know, that's the only thing that like, people really tracked. I mean, I'll, mm-hmm. like Brandon, same thing with you. Like, you know, we're, you know, we kind of, 
hit on hit on the head there where you need you need to get stronger we address that later right but you know like for everybody has their own story like you know taylor like what did you what was your lens of development like growing up? you guys are a little bit younger than me I, apparently i'm 47 thanks simon <laughs> Just but um you know what i mean it's like yeah yeah no it's like it was the same thing just being in the weight room was like the only like i don't know like when people look to development or like developing you or at you as a player or you as like in your, within your body it's like it was just the weight room that was really probably the only thing that guys looked at like at least like it started to happen more like later in college um but like when people started trying to look at pitch design and um kind of diving into the metrics of pitching. And then I think hitting kind of came after, like all the hitting metrics kind of came after pitching a little bit more. Um, but yeah, I was literally just get stronger. And then we would wage like success on like how you did in the season, whether, cause it's so yeah. up, like there's so many outside results factors. Outcome versus yeah, losses. It, was all, it was all results outcome. Yeah. So which can drive players into the ground, which is tough to look at. So, yeah, I remember at least personally being like one of the first guys like my age with my like playing group to like really commit to the weight room too right like like there there were a lot of kids who were like maybe just because they were naturally a little bit more physically advanced than me that that waited until college when they like had like mandatory lifts or whatever to start really hitting the weight room and i personally i credit a lot of like my continued success through levels to learning to learning and committing to that early right because like once once that started it was it just became a part of who i was as a as a player and you know a, a kid who graduated high school throwing 85 ended up kicking around in pro ball for a couple of years you know yeah and that kind of honestly stalled my development right where i didn't put any kind of effort hardly in the weight room until junior high school college excuse me mm -hmm. you know and shit man i was like 160 pounds soaking wet my freshman year of college you know yeah and you know looking back that just literally cost me so much playing time and a lot of success in my opinion you know where you know i had good movement qualities but i didn't have any strength output you know um andrew you're a lot younger than us you just literally got out of college what is you know what was how did you look at development as a lens growing up from high school and then to college yeah so i i think it might have just been where you know, I was, I was really focused on result outcome. Like I wanted to pitch well. I wanted to have like good stats. I was really big on stats. Um, and yeah, like that was kind of like the, the issue that I ran into is I was, yeah, like 135 pounds, 5'9", 76, 78 for four years of high school. And then kind of got opened up to, I met this kid in junior college who ended up training a little bit and gained like six to eight miles per hour and like, I was like, oh, this is tight. Like, I, I have to throw harder if I'm going to go anywhere in baseball. And then trained and, like, honestly, like, getting stronger for me was by far the biggest um, velo gain, I guess. Like, obviously, like, velo is not the only part of it, but, like, it definitely played in my junior college college success and, like, got me to a good D2. D2. Um, but, yeah, I think, like, movement quality-wise, like, I was kind of in the same boat as, like, Simon, I guess you guys, like, I – didn't have too many issues. Um, I moved pretty well. I, I didn't understand how throwing worked that much, but like I did things pretty well and um, like getting stronger got me to kind of where I needed to be. And uh, I think from there, just, it was just fine tuning things. But then again, like still like only topping 90 doesn't really play getting past D2 level, but still, you know, it got me there.
So, I mean, and not one of us mentioned data, right? Reading, no. reading different things, you know, and yeah, it, wasn't it wasn't available to us. Right. So going off of that, like, Simon, where do you see the game of baseball going with data? Right. Is there, are we going to get capped out? Are we going to keep on going? Are we going to continue to develop these crazy human beings of throwing 103 miles an hour with 42 inches of vertical break? <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, you know, where, where do you see the game going now, like development wise, being in pro ball? Now you see it being with us in the private sector. You see it, you know, we have, you know, you have the capabilities to help a lot of dudes, right? Yeah. So where do you see the game of baseball going? I think, I think data is going to continue to drive advancements in the game, right? So, so over the last decade plus, you've seen this huge surge of four seams at the top of the zone um, and an increased usage of breaking balls, right? And, and more and more people are developing the capabilities to not only train velocity, but train pitch shapes and sort of build, build attack plans around that. Um, I'm, I'm really interested to see what direction the game takes when when data becomes more widely available about that sort of like that grittiness right like that like 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 what kind of a ball player guys are um because you know that's that's definitely it's just something that like mlb so clearly wants right so like you you open up twitter and every other tweet from ken rosenthal or whoever is just like the they're moving the mounds back in the independent leagues and shifting is illegal and all of this stuff. Right. So like baseball clearly wants to go in that direction. Um, and I think it'll be really interesting to see what kind of role um, data plays in that, because especially with Hawkeye at the minor league and major league level now, right? Like we have so much information about the way that these, these players are moving on the field. And so many of these guys are, getting so much bigger, so much faster, so much stronger that like you've got a bunch of freaking superheroes running around on a field and every single movement of theirs is tracked. So I'm, I'm, I'm interested to see what, what that, um, what becomes of that, all of that information and how yeah, we're already seeing steal probabilities, catch probabilities, all those different things. Right. Which is, I think is sick. Yeah. Um, you know, we can, you know, that's how the shift is developed. That's how certain things are developed. What do you think baseball is going to take, take a step back from that at all? Do you think it's going to keep on progressing with the data or do you think it's going to go back to, unfortunately, what MLB Network talks about, right? It's a bunch of bullshit with like John Smoltz and I'll blast them. I don't care. You know, like those guys, you know, you know, yeah. get pitch overlays and all that kind of stuff. Do you think, First of all, I think those guys need to get out of the way to allow us to progress. But do you think baseball is going to, uh, you know, take a step back and just kind of go to that old school mindset with the new development patterns we have of data? No, I, n not a chance. Right. Like, like the, there's too much information being collected um, and successful teams are using it too well. Um, I think. I think the the story of the next decade of baseball is going to be how how do you take all that information and interpret it into something actionable um, that uh, that can help you win on the field, right? And and then and then really interesting, right, is how that trickles down into college, 
high school baseball and then how how that starts to affect like the way we train guys at at push too right because because we have a really interesting cross-section of the baseball world where we've got middle school high school college professional big leaguers like guys who play overseas right and all of the all of those dudes are training in the same building um at a really really high level relative to their competition right and so as as the game changes at the highest level i think it'll be really interesting to see how how that um affects what we're able to do and and sort of how how clearly we can see our goals in training with our athletes at push 100 i agree is anybody else got anything on yeah, that yeah i think like too with like the pro guys and how much like data is becoming a factor like in pro balls these pro guys are getting so much information that works have so much information on them that these pro guys can bring in that information with them or that data with them in here and give us kind of, and then that can kind of help us find goals and fine tune their goals for the offense and see what goals that the brick has for them or figure out what kind of player the org wants them to be and kind of figure out what's missing from their game, whether they're a hitter or whether they're a pitcher and then help us kind of, kind of perfect that craft or kind of dive all in on that throughout the off season. Um, and just kind of, um, it just kind of gives us an, uh, an overview of what exactly each player, each player needs coming in. hundred um, percent. Andrew, what do you got? No, I think Taylor actually made a really good point right there. Like if they have the data available, like as, as like, like you said as well, Simon, like the, the data is available now and it's available literally whenever they want if they can come in in an off season to provide us what is working really well and like that makes our job even easier to like hey like this slider is gross and we can make it even nastier like how is this going to play off of off of your your heater or off of your changeup or whatever the other like pitch is and then they move on into like regular season spring training like oh crap like this is even better than it was before. Like, you know what I mean? So I think like having that data readily available now, and then even them being able to bring it in can make our job and their progression even better. Yeah. I mean, it goes along with what we do too, right? Where TPI, you know, invented that on-base use screen, for example, right? Where they're, they're, they have an app that they literally just show all the major league organizations. This is what they do. And every major league organization wants to see that data and, and movement, right? So, you know, where we're, we're coming up with stuff, it's like, all right, they want to see the on-base stuff, but they also want to see power output stuff. They also want to see, you know, different assessment types or different, you know, different things that we do on the movement capability side, which will dictate what the guys do in the weight room and also do on the mound. You know, so there's a lot of pre pre factor predictors, I guess is the word, right? Predictors on how guys move, why they move the way they do on all those things. And teams want to see that data. We get re we re get reached out from teams all the time, right? And I mean, how many times have you talked to a strength coach from an org this year, last offseason? A lot. A lot of different. Like Brandon, you talked to a couple, right? It's, you know, these guys are always wanting to know, you know, so I mean, like some of your staff was in our facility, you know, and mm -hmm. um you know, just trying to, you know, see what, that there's a new edge of what we can do, you know, with, with each thing. And going off that, though, like, what's important in an assessment, right? I think that's kind of the meat and potatoes of this program today is, or this episode today, is, you know, Andrew, you and I have been having phenomenal conversations on this, right? You know, like, how important is a table assessment, right? 
how important is the throwing assessment? How important is the strength assessment? Right. There's all, they're all different things, right. Where, you know, how, like Taylor, let's start with you. Like how important, and Brandon, I want you to chime in on this. How important is the table assessment to you guys? Cause this is a huge thing for me, truthfully. And I know it's kind of like not frowned upon, but like, it's just looking at a different lens. You know? Yeah. No, I think, um, well, kind of how we do assessments and then how Austin um, with next year, how they do it, we kind of do it backwards. So we start on the strength side, we usually start with the table assessment, then we do the movement assessment, and then Austin will generally start with movement assessment and then go into the table assessment. We kind of both have like different processes and how we do it, different like things we think about um, for us. And I can kind of say that for Brandon too um, and for all of us in the strength side, but we use a table assessment and then we can kind of use it as like predictions of how they're going to move in their movement assessment. Um, on the mound, stuff like that. It just kind of gives us like a uh, like a quick kind of scope to kind of check out, okay, like kind of look at like a microscopic level, like, okay, this does not move well at this joint, or this was phenomenal at this joint. And then kind of putting it in like, okay, why does he move really, really well on the mound? Or why can he not do this on the table, but he can do it on the mound? So it's yeah, kind of like- At the same time though, we don't want to put like how we think he's going to move and take that preconceived notion. It's like, yeah. this kid's going to move this way. I don't, you know, like, no, yeah. I know he's going to move this way because I see this, but in raw reality, he does the complete opposite, right? Where yeah, yeah. you're, you're forming an opinion of how he moves based on your table assessment, right? Mm -hmm. Where, you know, you see, might see lack of, lack of hip extension, back hip extension on the table, but then you see him on the mound, he gets, you know, he gets down the mound really quickly, has good IR, has good hip extension, right? Um, you know, but sometimes like, I always ask questions through our assessment process where it's like, hey, like, do you miss arm side up a lot? Like, oh yeah, like, how do you know that? because a your scap is completely depressed and you have no hip extension you know you can't get your hand overhead um you know so like and then sometimes i like, know I'm, I'm pretty good all right well then then we definitely need to look at your throwing video right let's kind of break it down that way so just like not having that predictive factor of what you think that athlete's going to look like before he takes the weight room before he takes the mound and does a throwing assessment with with you guys you know I think that's I mean, that's why it's so important to look at the throwing side too, which we do. Yeah, yeah, you have to look at both sides. You can't just yeah. One for I mean, sure. What do you got on that, Brent? Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's all. I think they're all equally important. Um, I think they all have a role, and they all have importance in whatever lens or scope you're looking at. Um, you know, basically, like you know, you guys have all said, like the table assessment's going to tell you one thing, and then the movement assessment's going to tell you another, and then the throwing assessment's going to tell you basically the table and the movement assessment together. Um, so it's just basically using all the pieces. Like I even use just a static posture assessment. Like I just want to see how the person stands still, like, you know, like just where are they starting from? So there's, you know, there's, there's multiple pieces to the puzzle. Um, you know, unless you're literally working with some one piece puzzle, but you know, there's very rarely any of those. So, um, yeah, it's literally, you know, like each assessment I think has its, its own role and its own, you know, nuance and, you know, caveat that you, you want to use and it's kind of just, how are you using them? Yeah. You know, what's. What's important to you for an assessment? Um, I actually, you know, like just basically getting, you know, baseline measures. Um, you know, are they coming in healthy to start the assessment? Um, you know, or are they? Um, are, you know, are they are they coming in healthy initially? Are your numbers with them in a good place? So then that's like, okay, like all right, well, you know, you're healthy here. Let's you know keep you around these ranges, or are they coming to you? previously injured or with like a long list of injuries and then now those numbers are showing you like all right your body probably doesn't like these positions that you're either starting in or getting into so i think it's kind of previous history plays a you know a huge role into that you know very initial 
um, meet and greet with that assessment. And then throughout the assessment, like you were saying, DJ, you know, you're just asking the athlete questions. Um, I usually always ask my, especially my pitchers, like, hey, you know, post throwing, like heavy volume, you know, where are you feeling it the most afterward? You know, are you a guy that's, you know, super, super tight and, you know, anterior side of the shoulder, bicep blown up, forearm blown up? Or are you a guy that you can go out and throw nine innings and the next day you wake up and you got maybe a little bit of soreness in your lap? You know, it's like, are, are you a guy that, you know, moves well and efficiently on the mound? Or, you know, are you the guy that's out there max effort and he wakes up the next day and he's just completely blown up? So it's just, you know, using that in your assessment kind of tells you a lot, too, about, like, all right, is this guy actually an efficient mover? Is the guy that, you know, is a good athlete, maybe compensates a lot, gets the job done, but, you know, he can probably be doing a little bit better. And going off that, too, that shows, like, demand, too, right? Mm -hmm. So, like, our table assessment, guys can do that if they threw, if they didn't. If they, throw, if they throw, they might show a little bit of lack of range of motion or decreased range of motions, right? But say we have, like, a full-out bullpen assessment, full-out strength assessment, and a table assessment, guys pretty much can't do shit for two days going up into that assessment, right? Especially somebody coming in, it's like, I just booked an assessment today. I want to get assessed. Like, well, shit, like, did you throw? Did you do this? Did you do that? Like, did you lift yesterday? Yeah. Like, all your power output numbers are going to suck, right? Because... You just did all these things. So your neuromuscular demand was higher. Your CNS is shot. So right now, they're like, all right, we should probably just wait till next week to do your assessment kind of thing, right? Or we can get predictive factors on the on the table, right? Where you look at hip flexion, hip extension, shoulder ranges of motion, all those different things where those are just true ranges of motion, right? And then you can have them do a basic lunge squat, you know, pattern, push-up pattern, whatever, act, active, you know, active. So, um, you know, going on the pitching side now, Simon – what are you looking at on our assessments for guys? Like, I know we do some shuffle throws. We do some, maybe some bullpen stuff. If the guy's capable, like, what are you looking at? And then what data are you going back to the data thing? What data are you collecting that first day? And then what are you sharing with us on the strength side? Yeah. So um, we're making guys uh, in, in the throwing assessment um, make throws um, from different constrained positions. Right. Um, so, uh, they'll, they'll make, they'll make a throw, um, just feet square to the target, um, just pure upper half rotation. Right. And, uh, and so we'll get velo readings on that. So, you know, we'll make five of these, let the last couple eat or, or whatever. And, and we'll get, we'll, we'll, uh, bring that, those drills closer and closer to, uh, to being on the mound. Right. And, and if there's, if there's a disconnect, um, then we know that there, like that might be a main area to attack. Right. So if, um, their shuffle throws are awesome, but then they get on the mound and lose a significant amount of velo, well, they're not moving down the, down the mound properly, or they're not sequencing through the throw the same way they do, um, in their shuffle throws. Um, and then we're just, we're just going to collect, going to collect a full sample of, uh, track man data, right. From that, from that first bullpen. So it's like, okay, when I'm not telling you anything, when I'm just sitting there with an iPad and my legs crossed and you're like, what does this kid even do? Right. What, what does your ball do? Right. When I say, Hey, throw me a, throw me a slider. His power went out in the, in the DR. Oh. He just texted me. 
Anyways, uh, so just pick up. Finish that one up. Yeah, Andrew. Finish that? Yeah, no, yeah, that was a great segue. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, kind of like what he was saying there is like, okay, so first, first bullpen, um, obviously yes. after like an on, on ramp phase or whatever they need to do to uh, to handle the load of a, a pen, hop in their bullpen. Um, yeah, no keeping, no coaching. Let them do and see what their ball does, and then have a conversation with them afterwards or the next bullpen, and then make adjustments from there and. Um, what clicks for them um, different cues work for different guys obviously and especially like when they're in a kind of like a blow it out bullpen with all their pitches you know you have to give them give them cues and, and ideas and feelings and thoughts that kind of click um, but yeah and then it's obviously just tracking between um, that first initial bullpen and then tracking with the next bullpen and then progressing even there um, to see what was working what wasn't working and then kind of just moving on from that but, kind yeah. of going off what we talked about the other day is right. Like we can have a lot of movement predictors on our end uh, based on what we see on the trackman, just yeah. like seeing the pitch capabilities, right? Mm -hmm. Where you're seeing guys, you know, just the vertical break, horizontal break, all those different factors, right? Or even extension on the ball, right? We can see pre, pre uh, existing factors on the table. You know what I mean? Um, I think that's a huge data thing where it's just instead of just getting on a bunch of force plates and stuff like that, you know what I mean? It's more so the fact that like, you're looking at like how they actually throw the baseball, you know what I mean? So Simon's back. Um, so, you know, like look reading the track man's very, very important. Being having a strength coach, be able to read the track man is very important where, you know, that you can see why like they, they don't supinate the ball well, they don't pronate the ball well, and it's what pitch, they don't lateral flex well, you know, sinker ball guy, whatever it may, whatever it may be, right? So. You know, just reading the data alone, like you could look at any big league track man report and have a pretty good idea of how the athlete's moving on the mound. Wouldn't wouldn't you say, Simon? Yeah, and and also, um, and this is especially true for outlier guys, right? But um, you get a really good uh, idea of what they already do well. That that is that is what makes them special, right? So like, um, Kyle Bradish is a good example we had, right? such extreme lateral trunk tilt that he throws cutters right so um i know taylor and i had had several uh conversations about this this past off season right which is like um we're we're expecting him to do certain things on the mound that we don't expect other pitchers to do right and that and that has to be reflected well, um, take, like we gotta get him to stop having lateral tilt right decrease lateral tilt some at some point so like you don't see an oblique or you don't see an issue right there would you say that not necessarily right because like he he has to stay weird and awesome the way he is but he just has to be able to sustain that movement right so if so if what we're worried about is an oblique then like like he's just gonna be he's gonna be doing that right like he's gonna get into that extreme lateral trunk tilt position and um, his, you know, what, what he's going to do on the strength side is going to have a lot to do with like being able to maintain that and being able to maintain that, not, not just over the course of one season, but over the course of a career. So what do you do on that side, Taylor? Do you increase stability? Yeah. So these? yeah, the big thing with Bradish was just a lot of stability. And I had like, this, that was one of the strength coaches, but that was one of the strength coaches that um, called us. <laughs> yeah, that called us that I had a lot of conversations with, um, especially with Kyle being um, 
pretty high up in their org. Um, but with Kyle, he was, and he did stuff with Austin as well, but he was ridiculously mobile. Like you could have probably put him in any position you wanted to on the mound or told him or cued him to do this, this, this on the mound. He probably could have done it, but that probably wouldn't have made him a better pitcher just because he is so funky on the mound. He gets so over the top, um, which is what makes him really, really good. So for him, it was a lot of just building stability and making sure that he was strong through those positions and making sure that like, it wasn't so much like, it wasn't just like a passive range of motion that he was getting in, but he was strong enough through getting into that range of motion. So we did a lot of like, um, a lot of med ball slams, a lot of, of rotational med ball slams, stuff like that, to make sure that he was able to get into that lateral flexion and tilt with some sort of strength and controlling uh, it and control and controlling that for sure. Um, but yeah, stability was probably one of the biggest things, and I think we did a good job of it. All right, we did, yeah, through working with Simon, we did a good job of it. Um, he's having an okay year. He's having an okay year. Yeah. He's average. He's Sneaky right. talented. Yeah, I would never say that to his face. Well, the whole world heard it now. <laughs> yeah, well, I guess we'll see if he listens to the podcast. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. Um, yeah, I mean, going off that, Simon, like, how much are you? How much are you looking at our strength assessment? Right, as much as we're looking at your at your your TrackMan report, your plyos, your player development report, all that stuff from you, Andrew. Like, how much are you guys looking at what we're doing on the table? in the weight room every day we see an athlete move first and foremost under load is an assessment and reassessment. Right. So how much are you, like we communicate more than anybody. I'll put it on, you know, put that on anything. We'll, we'll communicate with you guys more than anything, but how much are you taking it in like what we see? Are you, are you looking at predictive factors on there over there as well? For sure. Um, And I think, I think um, the way sort of the way the flow of a, of a push strength and throwing assessment works actually is really conducive to this because they'll go through their table and movement assessment and then you'll give them their first a block and while they're going through that a block you and i have a chance to step aside and and i'll be like hey like what what kind of things should i be expecting here um is that do you have any concerns with his movement is there anything that he's exceptionally good at um and um in a lot of cases, right, that'll uh, that'll allow me or Andrew to to know whether we can try and cue somebody into a certain movement pattern, or whether that's going to need to be a more of a long term play as um, between uh, constraint based plyo care and um, all of the different movement work and strength work you guys do uh in the weight room sort of increases their capacity to get into a certain position that we might ask for um right and that 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 initial conversation um i think makes makes a world of difference um with sort of setting my expectations for okay like we can cue this person into into a certain movement or hey like this is going to take some more time it's going to be more of a long-term project and then it also just starts the ball rolling on an ongoing conversation about that athlete right where like if if you and i or me and taylor or andrew and brandon or whoever have a in-depth conversation on day one that sort of sets the expectations for how we're gonna um train the athlete going forward is it's it's in that specific case, right? Like you, you have to, you have to constantly practice that communication, right? Um, hundred percent. And more often times than not, you're sitting in 
with one of the strength coaches building their A block, right? And Absolutely. We're talking, we're talking through that, right? Hey, Absolutely. like I'm implementing this pattern because of this. What did you, what do you think? Or what did you see? You know what I mean? Um, yeah. I think that you, you and Andrew having as much say in their A block is just as important as just, just us coming up with it. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? What you say guys, like that's, that's super important for me. Um, Andrew, I was going to ask you a question. I forgot what it was. I had a really good question for you. Um, well, I don't know what it was. What is, you know, you, you doing a little bit on the strength side. Now you're full-time throwing. What part of our assessment process do you see to be the most important translation onto the mound? That is a good question, DJ. Thanks, man. Honestly, probably table assessment, just because I think it gives me a really good, like, of like, okay, like, let's just say, for example, this guy has really bad table IR in his hips, right? And, but for some reason, visually, in his throwing assessment, he gets into really good IR. So like what, what there is compensating to allow him to get into IR, right? And then kind of coming back to you guys and figuring out like, okay, like what do you guys think is like causing this or allowing this to happen? Um, that's where I feel like the, tab- the table assessment is pr- like pretty important just because like, yeah, sure, we can get that out of like a dynamic assessment going through like a lateral or like a, like a single leg RDL or, or whatever movement, but like they're not able to hit something passively, but they can hit it actively. It's like, okay, like, how are they doing that? And why are they like, why is that allowing to happen? For sure. And also you got to think too, right? Where I see, say a hip interrotation fail on an active straight leg raise. I'll test them supinated hip IR and I'll go prone to take the extensors out of it. Right. And then most of the time you'll see a guy have true external rotation when they're in a prone position. So you're, you're just, you know, like, all right, you can't just say fail, check the box and move on. It's more so like, why is he failing? Right. There's got to be different reasons to, to, to why he's failing that exercise. If he passes it in one position but fails it in another, and then who knows what the fuck he's going to do on the mound, mm-hmm. you know what I mean, until mm-hmm. we see him throw, we got to give him, you know, in every opportunity to keep on failing it, you know what I mean? Yeah. And that's what we're doing on the mound, too, is we're putting him into a dynamic position to show us if you can pass or fail that hip extension or hip internal rotation or whatever it may be, you know, and collecting data on that, right, where he's – you know, he has a, he has lack of hip extension. So he has pretty good prone position IR, but he has bad supination hip position IR. Like, to, like all right, his active straight leg was at, you know, 30 degrees. He failed, right? Um, collecting data on that. And then next time we retest, you know, we're going to get him to 40, 40 degrees. Next time we retest, we'll get him to 60 degrees, right? And then that will correlate to the mound. And then you can compare the TrackMan data with the degrees of hip extension or active straight leg raise or whatever it may be to, to build that proper program. You know, that shows that we're, that what we're doing is working. You know what I mean? Um, I think just giving the athlete every opportunity first and foremost to fail that or pass that, right. If they pass right off the bat, sometimes like, Oh, that, you know, like Brandon, you caught me the other day, a couple weeks ago, we're on the, on the, on the shoulder abduction drop test. Right. I was like, Hey, like, I, I thought it looked good. I'm like, yeah, look at his arm. I'm like, oh, fuck, that was wrong. You know what I mean? So it's like he he can cheat so well, it looks like he's passing. But you got to control it for one and put him in other positions to pass, right? I mean, that's most – That's where you get in the difference of, like, you know, passively testing on the table and saying, hey, like, now let's, like, actively do this. Like, get yeah. yourself into this position. Because I, I think that, like, in itself is 
a bigger, bigger indicator to me than passive because passive could just mean that there's a structural issue. Like you're running out of like structural ability to do internal rotation. But you know, if they're, if they have the ability to do it now, you're going to, okay, why? Yep. And that, that takes you down a different rabbit hole. And like, you know, we do, I like to do a table first because it does give you a predictor, but if you have bad, like left hip internal rotation, you go, okay, well, like, is it in this position, in this position? And you can go through different movements and see, okay, does he have it here? Does he have it there? Why not? Is it a stability issue? Is it a strength issue? Is it a structural issue? Where, like, where do I go now? And it takes you down a different runway. What, Simon, what do you think plays a big role in throwing on the weight room? Is it a broad jump? Is it med ball throw? Is it, uh, you know, a broad, um, a vertical jump. Is it a 10 yard sprint? Like I tested, this has been on an episode before I tested TCU, LSU and Arkansas's pitching staffs on 10 yard sprints and very minimal, very, very minimal correlation to it. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, are, are you, there's some factors like I'll, I'll, I'll tell you my factors after what I think, but I hear what you think first. Um, are there factors in the weight room that we should be adding to our assessment or you would like to see in our assessment going forward in in um in a in more of a dynamic position with the med ball work or jumps or whatever you chime in too i think i think it's it's just um it's just too too nuanced to say like we have to test 10 yard sprints because people who have good 10 yard sprint times throw hard right we have we have two athletes um who threw have thrown 99 miles an hour in the last year um, for the first times in their lives um, in Joe Gatto and Marcel uh, Renteria, right? And I would I don't have their data in front of me, but I would guess that Marcel's 10 yard sprint time is probably pretty good. Um, and I would bet my absolute life that Gatto's <laughs> is bad, right? And so. And so it, it all comes down to, right, like leveraging the things that you're really, really good at because there's so many different ways to throw hard, right? If yeah. there weren't so many different ways to throw hard, you would stand Gatto next to Marcel and say that they both have thrown 99 miles an hour before and everybody would say that's bullshit, right? Yeah. Um, but they did. They both did. And, and RJ Dabovich is another one who threw 99 um this year and he's a different athlete than both of them right and so uh just i think one thing that we actually do a really really good job of um is understanding the nuance of all of that right where you're not you're not gonna only take 10 yard sprint times or only take vertical jump times um or only take like max bench numbers right like there's there's just too many different ways to throw hard and baseball is too weird and unique of a sport to limit guys by saying like cuz like if we just sprinted Gatto into the ground and he didn't stay strong and move well he would probably throw slower and if we locked Marcel into a squat rack and got him huge but he lost a little bit of the of the quickness he would probably throw slower right so I, th- I think that's probably where you see 
the low correlations with 10 yard sprint times because some people have like great 10 yard sprint times and that's what makes them throw hard and other people take five minutes to run 10 yards and still throw noise because they're big strong dudes who move well yeah i mean we can't train marcel like i, I program for both of them like joe needed that strength stuff that what's made that that's what made him elite marcel needed the sprints the med balls right the end range stabilities the the, the functional quote-unquote patterns right where he needed to to have success you know and obviously i i mean i literally just got off the phone with marcel walking into the into the gym today in the facility and i was like hey what's our goals for the off season he goes obviously like i need to get strong my like, dude like yeah you need to get strong as shit but you also need to keep your your gumbiness right he's super like he's super explosive super twitchy right so like you said if i just have him bench like the, the dude can bench how much does he weigh 155 160 he weighs 11 pounds yeah exactly and he benches 270 260 you know what i mean um which is absurd but that's not his main component of his lifts right jordan i know you had to say something sorry okay simon so with the same thought process with strength and explosiveness um so if i got a guy that comes in in the table on the table has bad ir but he throws 97, moves really well off the mound. What, where do you go with that? Like, can you kind of take everybody through like what that looks like? So, I don't know, they understand. Yeah. Um, so if if they've if you've got um, a a guy like that who's just compensating well enough on the mound um, to throw really hard, um, then my guess would be that like increasing that range of motion on your end would be a likely way to keep that player healthier. But the last thing we want to do is chain, like is detrain that skill of the throw, right? Because in that case, that, that specific athlete was just really, really good at throwing something. It's what, it wasn't particularly that his body was, was naturally meant to do that. Um, and so in, in those cases, like you have to be just a little bit more hands off, right? Because, uh, no coaching is better than bad coaching, right? So if, if somebody moves well on the mound, unleash them onto the mound and then, you know, you can train little nuances of whether it's pitch design or you can just write a really good throwing program for them to, um, build arm strength and stay healthy uh, that continues to pattern in the really good movement qualities they have on the mound. Right. But like, honestly, what I would do with that athlete who's moving so well on the mound is be like, Hey, you guys should definitely attack that hip IR um, because increasing that range of motion um, is only going to be, it's only going to be a good thing. But on my end, I'm just going to shut the fuck up. Because this kid's really good. So what like like what am I gonna do? Nothing. Andrew, what do you got on that? I mean, this is completely kind of different of what you used to look at assessments or still even look at assessments, right? I mean, what are your thoughts on all that? Yeah, so going back to the like getting guys to throw harder, what well, I forgot exactly what the question is before before we got into Jordan's question. What do you mean? We were talking about correlation, strength, strength and speed. And right, right, right. Yeah. yeah. So, like, I, I think of it in, in a, in a way, of, like, obviously, like what Simon says, I think is very applicable as well. But 
I think finding the biggest correlation to velocity, like, cause like we were talking about like, oh, like 10 yard sprint times, like jumping and things like that. But I think there is like, there's definitely a lot of data out there that, that shows like really like, like fairly high R squared values that are, that are kind of like showing like, Hey, like if this number is this, like this has a pretty good correlation to like throwing gas, you know? And I think it's just a matter of like, obviously like these values aren't going to be a hundred percent or like even 90%. But I think like upwards of like 60, 70% is like, it's a pretty good, pretty good number to like base your, base your VLO assessments off of like where you can kind of go from there. Um, well, but, first and foremost, this foundation of everything is strength. Mm -hmm. Like we need, we need to look at that, right? It doesn't matter if it's Gatto or Marcel, right? It's, it's, or, or Webby or Gosman, two totally kind of similar, right? It's, you know, strength is the foundation of all movement. Strength is king, no matter what, right? You can't have power without strength. You can't have force production without strength. So that being said, like, yeah, there's, that's where the, the values come into play. Right. Would you say? Yeah, for sure. For sure. Go ahead. Keep going. Sorry. I didn't. Yeah, no, no, you. that was good. Um, but yeah, shoot. What was the, what was the next piece there? Getting through ranges of motion in different positions. Yes. Okay. So yeah, I think, I think Simon made a really good point. Like it, it, I think at the end of the day, like if the dude's throwing 97, 98 has bad hip IR, yeah, definitely. Like increase, like it's it's just gonna like help prevent injury at that point. You know what I mean? Um, same thing. Like I was thinking, one of the guys we're working with right now has horrible overhead flexion. Um, just got off of a shoulder surgery, but still, even then, was like still like upper eights, and still he he said even then like he still had like, really bad overhead flexion, super bad thoracic extension. It's like okay, like maybe that played a role in getting hurt. But he was still throwing fairly hard for like uh, a sophomore in college or whatever, freshman in college. So it's like, okay, increase those ranges of motion, get him healthy again, and like get him comfortable in those positions that are in those like more extreme ranges. Like, and who knows what can happen there? Like, maybe he throws the same velo, probably won't, probably will throw a, hard, a little bit harder. But then he's then he's probably more healthy in those positions that he's going to be getting into hundreds of, upon thousands of times per week and per month. So I, that's kind of what I think as far as like range of motion stuff, you know? Um, yeah. Kind of figuring out where they're limited and it's um, how they get to those ranges of motion. Exactly. That's, yeah. that's the most important thing. Yeah. In my opinion is how the athlete gets that range of force. Mm -hmm. Is it fluid? Is it powerful? Is it controlled? Right. Is, you know, there's so many different ways to get there. And that's going back to the very beginning of this podcast where I said I was a good mover, but I wasn't strong. So I forced myself to get into ranges of motion where I didn't have that power output, right? Yeah. Yep. Um, but if you add strength to it, you're gonna control everything, right? You're gonna <laughs> have the stability. You're gonna have the ability to get into pronation in your foot and hold it, right? Versus just losing into supination or, you know, you controlling thoracic rotation versus just going through thoracic rotation. Um, you know, so like, what are ways that we can collect data and all these things as a staff, right? This is just a good question in general. What are ways we can, can, like, how do we know what we're doing is working? I think it all starts with, like, just an intake. Like, when you first get your athlete, you have to, you have to, like, record this stuff. And it's not a pass-fail, is you what can't, I'm saying, right? Well, yeah, you have, you have to be specific. It can't just be a yes or no. It's got to be, like, this is where it was. And whether that's an actual number that you put down or the coach, like, always does, like, does the test the same way, and you know the difference between, um your whatever level that you write down, like you have to have that intake because if you don't, like, where are you going to start? How do you know? How are you going to keep a record? Like, otherwise you're just fucking guessing. 
or we how do we show a high school kid how do we show the parent that they're spending their money wisely yeah right how do we show an org like you can send us more guys mm-hmm. yeah i mean what do you got on that taylor yeah i think that's kind of where like the usage of the data comes like really important because that's the way pro ball is going. I feel like there's still a lot of private facilities that are just like, a, like an orbital column or a strength coach column in the org. Like, hey, how's my guy doing? Great. He's moving really, really well. All right. What do you have to back that up? And so you have to have that stuff. And I think that's why kind of um, we're starting to talk to the PTs more and start to get more in the data and like being able to collect stuff um, by the pro off season, but having that, information available for those strength coaches because if you just tell yeah he's moving really really well but he's he's still throwing the same like his b is still the same every like but he moves a little bit better it's like okay you want to have those ranges of motion you want to have those numbers to back it up um and that's kind of where like i mean velocity kind of comes into play too it's like great he's up four miles an hour okay cool like that's all we need kind of thing but having having like the numbers in the weight rooms um specifically and the movements and the strength tests and the power up us to have those. To how important? Guys. How important is this vertical? If it went up two inches, staying throwing the same, yeah, right? Only matters. Ninety-seven mile an hour arm throwing the same with an increase of two inch vertical. Like, does that mean anything at all? Well, I mean, he didn't go down, so like, <laughs> there's that. <laughs> I mean, you didn't put him up. Well put. <laughs> On the off chance he gets a chopper back to the mound, he's got a shot now. <laughs> yeah. yeah, double play capabilities right there. Yeah, right? athletic, <laughs> have a good off season in the basketball or playing basketball. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, yeah. What the, the question truly is: What matters, right? Like, what what truly matters on our end? I mean, if it bottom line, I feel like it's over. It's over the athletes' goals. Exactly. We're making sure that right. you know, because exactly. usually if it's a pro guy, they're probably showing up with goals that their orb were like, "Hey, this is what we saw all season from you. This is what we need you to get better at when you come back." So going back to the beginning of the podcast, where I said that data is going to have to take a step back, that's where it takes a step back. But right. I, I still think even data helps back it up because yeah. then, like what we were just saying, is then when the guys leave here at the end of the off season. They go back and the org has their data from last season. They go into spring training and they get all this new data and it's completely different. They're like, wow, what did you do all off season? And then that's where the data. Yeah, they they did increase that two inch vert and nothing else changed on the mound. You're like, oh, oh, cool. They love, they they love that shit. I mean, I think it's just, yeah, I think it's just ultimately the the athlete's goals, like what matters because if it's a pro guy, then it's most likely that's the org's goals for them. And if the athletes aren't meeting those goals, then it's most likely not good for that athlete you know so it also increases their their confidence right yeah like they put the work in they saw results right what do you got side <laughs> on that <laughs> i mean so i i think i think in in a lot of cases right this this goes back to to andrew's point about the athlete specifically a pitcher in this case making hundreds and thousands of throws over the course of a week, a month, and a season, right? And so if that athlete's uh, vertical jump goes up by two inches, for example, um, and the max fastball velocity doesn't do anything, but maybe the minimum does, or maybe the average goes up, right? Um, then that, that's a huge win. Right, because every inning this guy's gonna throw ten to twenty fastballs, right? 
And so on average, that's a mile an hour faster, which has, and you know, the each individual analytics department is going to assign a run value to an extra mile an hour on the heater, right? Um, and then if the vertical jump goes up two inches and the max velo on the fastball stays the same and the average velo on the fastball stays the same and the median velo on the fastball stays the same, then maybe it didn't matter, at least in the specific case of that athlete, right? With the way, with the way they get to their velo. And then that's important information for us for the next off season, right? Because we're like, okay, um, we worked our asses off here. Uh, and in terms of, uh, like, immediate results like you jumped higher like that was good and then you were the same baseball player so like great like let's make sure like we don't lose that but if we're gonna send it on something maybe it's not gonna be vertical jump this year right and and the more you learn about the athlete um over the course of an off season and then over the course of a season following that right the better um the better job you can do training that person in the future so be, yeah, and I think also too, you know, like like we were saying, like even if it was just two inches of vertical break, and you know the the below stays the same, maybe the average goes up, but also maybe how is the guy's recovery the next day? You know, did we get that guy moving better to where now the next day he's able to go again, or was he that guy that if he threw one night he couldn't throw again for another three or four nights? Mm -hmm. so, you know, you could also look at it that way too. Like, hey, you know, yeah, you're, you know, you're not throwing maybe two or three miles an hour harder at the end of the off season, but hey, now you're actually able to go if you're a bullpen guy, back to back to back nights and actually feel good or decent versus you know the guy that's like, hey, I threw an inning tonight, like I can't throw tomorrow. You know, like you know, you have those guys, or if you're a starter, it's like, hey, you know, now you maybe feel better, you know, two days after your start versus four days after your start. So maybe just you know improve a little bit capabilities or you know getting the guy to be a little bit more of an efficient mover over the course of like Simon said you know you're throwing thousands of baseballs you know over the course of a season or whatever it may be if you improve those movement capabilities then obviously it's like hey you know if you're recovering better that's also a win too like that's less stress on the elbow and that's you're more available to the team exactly yeah you yeah. know if, yeah you can't play if you're not ready you yeah. know or you know you're not available so I think that could also be you know something that you're looking at what uh, value goes up. Yeah, 100%. Thanks for chiming in, man. Appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> Simon, you got anything else before we end it? No, man. This this yeah. was fun, as always. As always. Looking forward to seeing you in a couple weeks. Yeah. Looking forward to having you back. Um, we'll see you soon, brother. Yeah. All right. All right. Take care, man.